really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. My name is Jay Moran. Coming up on the program later on, we're going to talk with Leah Daniel from Fostering Greatness. But first, we have Cedric Holloway with us. Uh, We have a lot of ways of introducing Mr. Holloway this morning because he has a a wide array of experience. But I guess we're going to just put it uh, right off the bat on the Omega Mentoring Programming here in the city of Buffalo. First, uh, Cedric, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, a pleasure, and uh, to, to dip into some of your experience, well, let's just talk about the mentoring program right off the bat here. Uh, this is a program for, what, teenagers, inner-city teenagers? That is correct. Inner-city teenagers as well as uh, folks that are out of the city as well. We've had a couple of Lancaster individuals as well, so... And let's t- go through what it means to be mentored through the Omega Mentoring Program. Oh, indeed. Uh, so the Omega Mentoring Program, it's a hands-on mentoring program. And it's a free program. It's not uh, funded by a state, county, or, or federal agency. It's a bunch of uh, devoted volunteers Wow. who commit to... Uh, bringing up the youth, uh, finding a better way and uh, offering different opportunities for them. What these kids that end up in the program, are they getting uh, referred to the program? Do they find their way into it? How, how does that come about? That's some of everything. They, they get referred into the program by different agencies, parents, and, and uh, also the kids do their own promos for so they'll bring friends who see the friend in the program already and see what they're doing and they'll bring a friend along as well what kind of issues do some of these kids have then when they come to you a lot of these kids are are street kids a lot of these kids have seen a lot of things uh our our focus is to basically show them these different opportunities Uh, it seems like they, 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 they appear to be in a fishbowl, and a lot of them never escape that surroundings that they have, their, their neighborhood. And we take them further. Uh, we get them to see things that they've never seen before. We've uh, partnered with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, we've partnered with Shays Buffalo. We do college tours. We take them to different events, snow tubing and whitewater rafting, things of that nature. And a lot of times this is the very first time for those folks, our kids, to experience those type of things. That's got to be a nice opportunity. At the same time, if I remember how I was when I was a teenager, and I wasn't by any means an an inner city kid who was dealing with some of these issues that kids in the city deal with, Mm -hmm. 
But I didn't want to talk to authority. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I wanted to stand up. I was 16 years old. Right. I'd sit there with my arms crossed and with just a frown on my face. Right. How do you, I would expect you deal with kids like that a little bit. What oh, do you do? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's my desire to, to break down those barriers between the kids and adults, especially me being uh, uh, an officer who I was uh, for 33 years. I mean, they had to see me in a different light. And I know that there's a bad rap given on officers. And I thought that I was the spokesperson for the police department in relations to kids in the inner city. So I had to develop this, this, this wonderful rapport with them, which I still have. Uh, and they see me as just a normal person who was an officer. But at the same time, though, I would think that there's a, a general distrust of authority. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How do you bridge that? Um, being genuine. Uh, they see me as a genuine person who is absolutely in their corner. Um, I had an issue with a young woman yesterday, and I said, listen, I have got your back. Because she had some issues in school, quite naturally. There was a fight in school, and mm -hmm. we were addressing her on those issues. Uh, and we had to explain to her that there's a different way of handling things. So I said, you got to have faith in me. I said, I've got your back. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. But you have to trust me. And trust when I say duck I do mean duck instead of sitting here debating with me. I said, There's, there, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I'm not going to tell you any kind of bull BS. I want you to listen to me, know that I've got your back. And that works. It, they, they do realize that they can trust in me and as well as the other adults in the program. And it, it works out wonderfully, you know. When I tell them to duck, they, they duck, as opposed to debating, why should I duck? What are you telling me to duck for? Things of that nature. But it, it works, and, and I love the relationship that we have. You know, uh, uh, it'd be probably helpful to talk about maybe some of the unfortunate ends for some mm -hmm. of these kids, because that's a reality. Right. But let's talk about possibilities mm -hmm. with these kids. You've been doing this for a while now. Take us through some of your success stories. Oh, I've got several success stories. I get a call from one of my success stories. She works in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. She's a Secret Service agent, and she grew up in the hood. Um, when that Capitol thing happened, I got a call saying, there's something going to happen. There's, these people are here, and it's going to happen. Just pay attention to the news. Wow. And sure enough, the whole Capitol insurrection happened. It was it was it was bizarre, but you know I and I did attend her graduation. She called. I went down to Maryland for her graduation. Absolutely proud. Um, we've got firemen. We've got police officers. We've got teachers. We've got several individuals who are out here in the community doing positive things from the program, and they all attribute it to being in the program, which I'm. That makes me proud. And and this is a non-paid positions and that accomplishments that my kids have that's my payment and that's what i strive for um i'm curious about the type of experience let's say a kid who comes through your mentoring program brings to becoming a teacher mm -hmm. or brings to becoming a police officer mm -hmm. can you try to relate that again kids who have seen things that a lot of us have never seen. We only imagine it. Maybe we right. see something like it on TV that's not real. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but these kids have, have lived through this, and now they're teachers and they're, they're police officers. Is there a way to kind of describe what their experience brings to those jobs? Well, so they bring their own personal experience, like, uh, things that they've gone through as children, and they be, they're able to use it and turn it and use it to their advantage because uh, being able to relate to folks is, is a big part of being able to uh, have some sort of a relationship. So if, I, if we can relate, we're good. We're, we're going we're gonna to be okay. And I think that's what they bring to their jobs and such, being able to relate. A special quality to have in jobs mm-hmm. like that, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, some kids, it doesn't turn out quite as well. And that's that's got to be, it's gotta be um, a real kick in the gut for mm-hmm. you and your fellow mentors. Um, right. Can talk, again, as general as you'd like about you know, maybe some of those unfortunate circumstances. Right. This, this brings to, to height the, the, rea- the real mm-hmm. challenge here, is, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed, it does. And as I mentioned, we try to get these kids opportunities to be able to ex- experience something better try to break free from their fishbowl that they're in in their neighborhoods. And a lot of folks are bound to their neighborhoods because of where they live. We had a young man, his name was Eddie Battle. He was into the gang thing. Uh, uh, He was shot and killed because of his relationship with the gangs. Um, He had came, he had come to me and told me that he wanted to be out of out of that street mm. business, but he was so sucked in because of his friends, because of where he lived. So, unfortunately, he was he was wrapped up in it because of the association. He wasn't a gun person, but he was associated with someone who had street murder beef with another gang, another area, and we lost him. And he was maybe sixteen, seventeen, and that spurred a domino effect uh, for like revenge like this gang thing just it it got really really bad because of what happened with Eddie Battle and a lot of folks are tattooing his name Eddie Battle young Eddie Boy they called him Eddie Boy on their chest as the as a catalyst for revenge for other and it just was you get me I get you you get me I get you you know, and unfortunately, uh, they carry that on generational to generation. And some folks don't even know why they're having this beef. Right. But they know they have beef. And, and they just carry it on. And it's really senseless. And I'm sorry for, for your loss there, Thank of you. course. Um, our guest this morning is Cedric Holla, uh, Holloway. Uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about with uh, Mr. Holloway this morning. His Omega mentor mentoring program dealing with kids like we just talked about, Eddie Battle. Uh, not necessarily a success story, but one that uh, does stand out. Um, you also, of course, spent 33 years on the Buffalo Police Force as well. How can you define or give us an indication of the gang situation in the city of Buffalo? It's something that spikes up in the news, like mm-hmm. you said, once in a while. But at the same time, I think it stays pretty much below uh, below the surface from the public attention. Mm-hmm. What do we need to know? What should we know? What's going on? Well, there's there's such a large contingency of gangs in the city of Buffalo. Large, small, old beef, new beef. There's 
children of gangs, if you will. Like one gang will start like uh, maybe 10 years ago and then from there there'll be a, a a gang that's offset from there. I mean, this gang activity, a lot of the, the, the beefs in school are related to gang activity. You know, it's it's such a big problem here. And one thing with regards to them is that if you're not a part of a gang, then you, you lie unprotected. Mm. And people will say, where are you from? You know, that's, that's the big thing. And you got to answer correctly. If you're somewhere else and, and that incorrect answer, it means trouble, you know. And if you're not from anywhere, that's also a problem because you're, you're just you're standing there unsponsored, if you will. And and it's it's a big problem. And there's, there's going to always be those kind of issues in school and such because of gangs, because they, they start really, really young as well. It's got to make it hard for the people in the Buffalo Public School District. It's interesting, actually, before we went on the air, uh, you're talking about uh, you, you have a, a fairly advanced martial arts degree, um, for sure, that has taken you, uh, I think, worldwide, actually, in, in terms of competition and teaching. But um, at the same time, I know you tried to, you've been trying to help out some of the security personnel in right. Buffalo schools in that regard, um, which is obviously very commendable. But if that part of the school reality can't be can't be changed it sounds like i mean buffalo public schools have enough of an uphill, uphill battle as it is and it sounds like this is something that's got to be it's got to be curtailed significantly right. yeah we've got to, to offer these kids uh something else something in addition to their education at school there's this gang thing, being protected, being associated, uh, the beefs that exist, it's just crazy. I had a couple of kids from McKinley um, who were in some issues because of, I mean, this this, this gang thing, is just, it's just a virus that's running rampant in the schools as well, and grade school as well, like seventh and eighth graders are associated with gang activity as well. Um, and then they, they grow and they, they they have this association, it seems like, forever. And then new folks come along and get indoctrinated into the gang as well, and it just keeps going. It just keeps over and over again. It just reinvents itself as well. You were a city kid, grew up uh, just off Broadway. Yep. Um, Gangs weren't around then, not as prevalent. What was uh, what so, was it like? When I was uh, a kid, we had there were gangs back then, like the Mad Dogs and the Platlogs and uh, a la Turks, things of that nature, old school gangs. Um, so, but they weren't as bad as as these gangs. I mean, this this murder beef that goes on now, it's 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 it seems greater than when I was growing up. And um, so now, where my in where I grew up in my neighborhood, it's thirty one Broadway. Uh, down the way, um, and a couple other acronyms which they've spun off from, but gangs are still around, even 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 today for, uh, compared to when <laughs> what I've experienced as a kid. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you went to Howard University. That's where you got, I think, into the Omega um, Sci-Fi. 
Right, it's fraternity. where I was first, uh, first uh, exposed to it, yes. And it's interesting because that, uh, that dated back to Howard University in the early 20th century, I believe. It was right. the first fraternity on a historically uh, black college campus, uh, for sure. What about, I'm, I'm interested because it sounds like you're very connected to, uh, to members of that fraternity. And right. you probably hear about what life is like in other other cities. Excellent. Absolutely. So the fraternity now, oddly enough, it's uh, gone in the direction of uh, mentoring as well. Uh, the Grand Bassus, who's a grand uh, president, wants every chapter to have a mentoring program associated with their chapter. Uh, we've, uh, we've been doing it since 1999, so we're, we're far ahead of the game. And we absolutely know the effect of mentoring to on a kid. It, it absolutely works. And, and it, I believe absolutely that everyone should have a mentoring program. A lot of the times, like with, with my mentoring program, the parents believe that once the kids get into the program that we're, we're tutoring them, making, which is why their grades increase. Our focus was that we've made them accountable. We got uh, progress reports that we send to school, and we get them back to the program, and they say, oh, he was playing around in class, or he didn't hand in any of his homework, and things of that nature. So we address that kid. We confront that kid on that progress report, and now they hand in what they're supposed to hand in. And, and, and the result of that is that their grades improve, and the parent says, oh, it's great. You're tutoring. I said, no, they're just doing what they're supposed to do. And these kids are smart. Sure. They're just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So the improvement of grades are a direct result of mentoring, not tutoring per se, but mentoring. What about, is there um, a hammer there for you other, or is it just, kind of a peer pressure that you put on these kids that, you know, they show up and they get a progress report. They probably don't want to talk to you, right? I mean, right. is that it or is there other so ramifications? In, well, in the mentoring program, we do a lot of other things that keeps them uh, engaged. Like uh, there's a, a, a traditional black step that we teach the kids. Uh, we do things like uh, Cedar Point every year. We do whitewater rafting, snow tubing, uh, we're going apple picking uh, soon. Uh, we went to Chautauqua Institute. We've got a good relationship with Chautauqua where we go and uh, see plays and such. And we always tour the grounds. And and it's such a great experience, for the, especially for the kids, uh, to expose themselves to, again, like I said, something different. So all of those things are contingent upon them receiving wonderful progress reports. Now, we know that everyone's not a scholar. Right. But as long as they do what they need to be doing, that will help them. And then if, if we need to get tutors in, we'll hire tutors to help them out with something that they're legitimately having a problem with versus not handing in your homework for three weeks. I had a kid there from Sweet Home who just didn't hand in homework. I addressed him, and they were going to fail him. I was able to talk with the mother and be able to speak with someone at Sweet Home with regards to his grades. We gave him an opportunity. They gave me 
the opportunity to have him turn in all the work that he missed that was over with, that it was too late. But they gave him opportunity to turn in the work that they missed. And he was able to pass the grade because he was able to turn in the old, the old work. And that, again, because someone cared about him like, like we did, they made sure that they took care of him, gave him the opportunity. So he handed his homework, everything that was missing. And then we, of course, monitor him. Did you hand, what did you have today? Did you hand it in? And that's where the, the mentoring part comes in versus a, a every Saturday type of a thing. You come, you do something and leave. Like it's a, it's a mentoring requires a lot of time. Right. And a lot of effort. And, and I would also think, like you said, it's not just coming to Johnny B. Wiley on Tuesday Correct. for an hour. So it takes for a mentor, they've got to what, continue with the outreach, maybe texting, that Absolutely. kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Each of the adults have a set of of kids to monitor. So they they tend to their flock, if you will, and we all come together and we have uh, adult meetings and discuss the problems and concerns and things and the needs of the kids. Um, going back to the um, the networking level that you were on with um, with your fraternity, uh, Omega Sci Fi. And you talk to some of your fraternity um, members from other cities. Let's say like Atlanta. Atlanta always seems to be one that comes up uh, from people in terms of experience. Mm-hmm. Buffalo is our home. You're probably like me. You love it for, mm-hmm. for all of its, uh, its wrinkles, but all of its, its greatness as well. Um, but when you hear how things are in other cities, are you hearing of similar problems when it comes to you know black communities you know mm-hmm. like i i threw out atlanta with the idea that you know we you know we hear that there's this kind of uh, a different kind of sense mm-hmm. in atlanta for black citizens that maybe it isn't here in buffalo what, what do you hear about what, what do you get out i hear of? the same things going on so it's, it's funny that you mentioned that i received a call from one of my kids who was in a mentoring program who's now an atlanta police officer and he says that I want to do the Omega Mentoring Program down here. He says we're having the same problems, violence in the schools, things of that nature, gangs as well. And it's just the same thing. They go through the same things that we go through. Uh, we've got an individual who was in the mentoring program. He's now living in Charlotte. He, was in, he graduated from uh, performing arts. Hmm. He's an engineer now. He was in the, in the mentoring program. And there's a Omega mentoring program in Charlotte as well. So Atlanta and Charlotte are both the different areas that graduates who have made it are doing the Omega mentoring program in those cities as well because they face the same problems that we faced here. And what worked for them, they want to apply in their respective cities as well. That's got to be incredibly encouraging. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're talking with uh, Cedric Holloway. Uh, today on Buffalo What's Next, uh, getting into a lot of different things, including his uh, Omega mentoring program in the city of Buffalo. Uh, this conversation always seems to kind of go back to May 14th. You have uh, a, quite a, the personal story about May 14th mm. of this year. You were at Johnny B. Wiley That's correct. with your kids at that That's time. That's correct. We were there with uh, Shays Buffalo, who comes to teach uh, some drama, acting lessons, and things of that nature to the kids. So we were there 
uh, with the Shays Buffalo and um, the 514 thing happened while we were there. And we're, of course, we heard the sirens and such. And as I mentioned, a lot of the adults who are who were in the program are adults. One was a, one is a fireman, and he knew that we were down the street. And he sends me a text saying, "Keep the kids inside." He says, "I see three bodies in the parking mm. lot," mm. and he says, "I'm not totally certain about the bad guy whether he's caught or not." So we quite naturally locked the door. We held the kids in until I got word from them, from folks that I knew that were down the street there, that the uh, assailant was in custody. Um, we basically held the kids there. I held the kids there because a lot of them, kids were, I was a ride home. So I stayed there for, for a while. Um, it was a desire of the the responders to have a notification area so that they can notify the families of the deceased and seeing that my facility had kids in it that they couldn't use it but across the street was Mikowski so I had an executive from the Board of Ed with us and we decided that uh, Mikowski was going to be a great uh, spot for a notification center um, I called the engineers, who I still had the phone number to because of this being, me being the SWAT commander, needing everyone's phone number to be able to access stuff, right? So right. I called, couldn't get him on the phone, and I, in my career, I haven't found a building that I could not get into, <laughs> <laughs> be it locked or otherwise. So we made our way into the school with the permission of the Board of Education, and that's how Mikowski became... Um, the notification center. What about for your kids? Um, what was their response? What, what, have, what are they saying about it? If you don't mind sharing what they may have said about this particular incident. So they, they thought it to be crazy, but they weren't totally shocked. They weren't traumatized, it seems, because they've experienced so much in their day-to-day lives in, 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 in their own neighborhoods. It was, it was something to experience their experience of the shooting down the street. And I would, thought, I, I would think that they would be, you know, a bit shocked or traumatized, but it, it, it wasn't the case because they, wow. they, they experienced it in their everyday lives. One, one of the individuals, one of the kids I was with lost her brother violently in front of her. So it wasn't a big shock to them. Right. Is it, is it, I guess it's not even a matter of does that desensitate, I would call it desensitization, right? Right. Uh, um, I, I guess it's not even worried. Uh, we're at the point where we can even worry about what that means because mm-hmm. it's just the reality, right? right? I mean, it's just, there's just enough of it around that everybody's seeing. It's not necessarily even stuff that you're seeing online right. uh, or anything like that. It's, it's real for these kids. It is real, absolutely. They experience it. And when I usually give like uh, talks to folks and such, like, I've given a couple of talks to schools and such, and I say, well, how many of you have experienced uh, a, a loss, a homicide in your family or what, ha- or, or, or immediate family, close family members? And the majority of the crew was raising their hands because they've experienced it, like, school-wise or otherwise. It's, it's, it's just something else. But it's real. Um... 
you also um, and had a nice little honor. I know, um, you know we were talking about before that you know, this is a volunteer effort for you, mm-hmm. and you don't do it for the, the plaudits, but uh, you were out there um, for the Bills game, the home opener. Yeah, uh, that was to, exciting. I bet it was. Indeed. Yeah. How did that all come about? So I was notified, and I don't recall who gave me the notification. It was a Bills organization that decided to uh, honor me as well as the other individuals that were uh, involved with the after after the 514 uh, event that supplied uh, some sort of a service to the community in that neighborhood. And um, they said, hey, we, will, we want to honor you and others on the field. And it was great. I got to be on the field at the opening and stood there for the uh, national anthem and saw the team run out. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. But what what about the Bills? I mean, they were they had a nice presence down on Jefferson right mm-hmm. after five fourteen. You know, they have a, a unique role in this community, don't they? I mean, you and I and. Uh, Former commissioner for fire commissioner Whitfield, we're talking about the Bills game on, right. on Sunday coming up here uh, from on the elevator. Yeah, but yeah. It, are you? Is there a sense maybe that 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 organization now underst- maybe has a better understanding of their connection to what's inside the city, not just a region, a marketplace, but there's right. something a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I absolutely applaud the Bills for their 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 involvement, especially with the Johnny B. Wally, of course. Everyone knows Johnny B. Wally is the rock pile. Right. Which is the original home of the uh, Bills. I was there, first game, 1969. And, and <laughs> I talked with Mary Wilson. I said, I want to thank you for your... Because she came down uh, while we were giving out supplies and offering services, and I spoke with her as well as the Pergoulas that came by as well. And it was great to meet them. Sure. And uh, the Bills actually have come through uh, when we did our backpack giveaway. Uh, the Bills supplied us with some giveaways to give to the uh, kids. So we gave away 2,000 backpacks full of supplies from the teacher's desk. Gave away 2,000 backpacks in one hour. Whoa. That was quite, that was quite an event. So, And the Bills supplied different giveaways for that as well. So each time I call them... Uh, they come through Thurman Thomas as well, who was uh, the president of the Johnny B. Wiley at one point, and then uh, he handed it over to me. Each time I call him for something, he shows up. So it, it was, it was, it's great. The bills are absolutely uh, re, re, reply to any of my requests for help at the facility. Uh, I don't. I have a lot of other questions for you, but we're, we're running short on time. But I definitely, we have to talk about Johnny B. Wiley, mm-hmm. the Johnny B. Wiley Pavilion, of course, like you said, at Jefferson and Best, the former home right. of the Rock Pile. Home of the Buffalo Bills uh, from uh, 1960 to 1972, but now, of course, is a youth facility, and it's named after? And named after my father, Johnny B. Wiley. Um, it was named after him because he was an advocate for youth in that community. He, uh, he was a, a, a proud member of the Youth Advocacy Council, um, also provided a lot of uh, programming and such, which was focused towards the youth. So when... They were going to name the facility, rename the facility. They thought that, uh, and they, when I say they, the Common Council uh, automatically said it would be a good idea to name it after Johnny B. Wiley. And then the final question is, your program, your Omega Mentoring Program, sounds quite admirable. Mm. Can people help you out some way? What can they do for you? 
Well, tutors is one of the things that we we absolutely uh, need for our folks. And like I said, we do a lot of things uh, to keep them engaged in the program. Right. But the main focus, as I said yesterday to a bunch of kids, the main focus is to get them to college or better being better citizens. Like we've got uh, quite a few that are uh, veterans that go right into the service, mostly in Marines. Really? And, yeah, mostly, mostly my uh, young men go into the Marines and then they come back and they utilize the GI Bill. Uh, we've got one Marine kid of mine went into the Marines, came back, used the GI Bill, went to Buff State, got his master's degree. Now he's teaching at Hutch. He's a head coach at uh, Hutch Tech's football team. Nice. Yeah, so we do, we were able, to, if we can get tutors, uh, things of that nature, that would help us. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, we've got a website, omegamentoring.com, and we've got the johnnybwiley.com. You can look us up on, on the web. Facebook as well. You see what we've been doing, see the things that we've uh, uh, taken part in. We're all over the place. You're optimist. You're an optimist? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Nice. Cedric Holloway. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, we'll talk with uh, Leah Daniel from uh, Fostering Greatness. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year. Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit wbfo.org to sign up today. You can listen to WBFO anywhere in the world with your mobile device by downloading our apps at iTunes or the Google Play Store. Support for this audio service is provided by Freed Maxic, online at freedmaxic.com. One, two, three, five! You know those dance moves you've been practicing? You know the ones. Well, they can make their debut with WBFO The Bridge at our first ever silent disco at our studios on October 1st. Whether you love hip-hop and R&B, throwback and top 40 hits, or especially WBFO The Bridge, there will be something for everyone. Join us for this COVID-cautious event with added accessibility features. For tickets and even more information, visit wned.org events. Support for the silent disco is provided by Project Best Life. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. 
This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Uh, my name's Jay Moran. We're with Leah Daniel from Fostering Greatness here in Buffalo. Leah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, a pleasure for sure. Um, it's interesting we had Cedric Holloway on before talking about his mentoring program for for youth in the city of Buffalo. And we're kind of in the same ballpark to a certain extent because for you and your group, the big focus is on these these young folks who are foster children have been through the foster system and now they they're getting close to that aging out situation what's at stake when when they get to that age well the foster care youth young adults and alumni is a population that is often forgotten and underserved and misled because there are a lot of negative stereotypes around, you know, foster care youth and their behaviors. So a lot of times when they're aging out between the ages of 18 and 21 here in New York State, nothing is set in place for them to become successful citizens. And they go into survival mode. And as we know, when a person is in survival mode, they're willing to do any and everything they can to live and survive. And so with Fostering Greatness, Inc., we wanted to change the narrative. We wanted to let them know that there was services available for them, people who had gone through the system who were successful, people who could help guide them along their current path. And so just letting them know that they weren't by themselves. Like you said, you want to change the narrative, but there is a reality probably here too. Like that, there's a, this is a, a time in life where there's trouble perhaps on the horizon. What are some of the things that you've seen happen to some of these unfortunate kids? Um, one of the first things that happen is human sex trafficking. Mm. A lot of times when youth run away from the foster care system, um, no one looks for them. And so those who are involved in the human sex trafficking world know that and they take these young people and they exploit them. The second thing is gangs. You know, these young people want to fit in. They want to be a part of something, a family. And so they're easily navigating into that that realm. The next thing is uh, criminal activity. So they're willing to do whatever they need to do in order to sustain themselves. And then the next thing is being in abusive relationships. A lot of the young women end up getting with men who know that they don't really have anyone to care for them or care about them or that's going to step in if something happens. And so they just take advantage of that. So we're changing the narrative. So you're what you're actively reaching out to these kids as they get to a certain age. Absolutely. So I myself, I am an alumni of the foster care system. And what I noticed is that when I was growing up in the foster care system in the late 90s, early 2000s, is that there weren't any success stories of people that looked like me. You know, I'm an Afro-Latina. I didn't see anyone. There were a lot of just older white men who I could not relate to. Sure. And so... Um, I think that seeing more people who were successful and being able to talk to them and ask them, you know, how did you do this? And I had mentors, you know, people who saw things in me that I didn't see within myself. Um, 
And that was very helpful. So I am exposing these young people who, before they transition out of the foster care system, they're in independent living programs. And so just going to them, speaking to them, sharing my story. And then a lot of them have access to call me. Um, they share different things. And then there are certain programs that they have access to until they're 23. So a lot of things I'm trying to link them to um, services within the community. And we're working on getting a building so that those who may not want to just really be on their own when they age out at 21. We want to have something for them with case management. So what is what is available then for um, the, these kids in that, that difficult time that you're talking about a- aging out of the foster system? Well, right now through Fostering Greatness, Inc., we um, help them with emergency services as far as like if they do have an apartment and they're behind on their rent, we're able to assist them in that area um, to find housing. We're right now putting together um, a community of trusted landlords who would not exploit them and who would know more about the foster care system and be able to better assist us because there are housing vouchers through HUD that's available for them. Um, Also, a couple of uh, the youth Most of the time I take them to go get their hair done, um, get the appropriate clothing they need, help them to provide the proper undergarments and toiletries that are needed, assist them with their babies, show them how to take care of their babies and themselves. So it's it's not a one size fits all. It's always a different situation. So we just try to have things in place to assist those in emergency situations. And uh, I would think it's interesting that you're somebody who came, you're an alum of the foster system, as you say. Yes. Um, so you can understand what they're going through. Everybody's a little bit different. But at the same time, how long lasting are the issues for kids who go through a troubled foster existence? Well, it depends. You know, um, foster care youth suffer three times as much um, with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, than war uh, victims and veterans. And so um, they go through a lot. I mean, imagine just being neglected or abandoned. And let's not even think about if they're, you know, a you know drug-addicted baby, all those different type of things. But what I have seen is that um, if they have the proper uh, care plan, therapeutic options, a loving family, and consistency... A lot of them can make it through, you know, it's like nature versus nurture, you know, are you going to grow up uh, based on the environment that you were brought up in or based on the things that you were taught as you were growing? So it's, you know, every case is different, you know, Um, so some people make it, some people don't, but we want to be able to give them the option and them not say, I didn't have anything, so this was my only choice. Who ends up in the foster system? Let's talk about that just a little bit so we can mm-hmm. kind of understand how large of a, of a segment of the population we're talking about here. I mean, how, do, how does somebody end up in the foster system? Yes, so there's a disproportionate rate of um, children of color, especially African-American children, um, in the foster care system. A lot of times it's due to poverty. Um, families are not able to take care of their children, um, whether they go to school and a, a teacher or the administrators make a report if they're being abused, if they've been abandoned. Sometimes people just say, I can't take care of my kids and right. I have to give them to the system. Um, so those different type of things. Or like I said, if uh, babies are drug addicted, sometimes they don't go home with their parents. And, you know, they're just taken they're right into the foster system. Then? Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. We're talking with uh, Leah Daniel from Fostering Greatness uh, this morning on uh, Buffalo. What's next? Uh, so we don't want to cast aspersions on people who are trying becoming foster parents. 
fortunately, we do know that there are some that are that have had less than positive results. We'll kind of frame it like that. What to talk about the the foster parent foster child relationship what legally do we understand about what should be going on in those in those situations well any child that's in foster care they're a ward of the state meaning they're you know basically the state is their guardian okay okay and so when the foster parent um has children in their home the expectation is that they treat them as if they were their own child um the disconnect there sometimes is that social workers do not share the complete story of what maybe some of the children have gone through, their behaviors and things like that. So the foster parents are not prepared. Oh. And sometimes some of the things that these youth have gone through are triggers for foster parents who may have gone through trauma themselves. So that's a big one. Wow. So so foster parents are sometimes alum of yes. the system is, uh, and they're I guess they're, they're trying to help, but maybe... That's a little more difficult scenario than they expected. Right. And they don't get as much support as they should. You know, um, there are some people out here like a, a woman named Sherry Sullivan who has um, a parent um, support group for those who have foster care youth or who have adopted children to talk through some of those things and see how others have navigated through, you know, some of the, the adversities that they've had with the children that they, they love, but they just don't know how to help right. at that particular moment. No shortage of kids that are in the system right now? There's more kids than there are foster parents. And so unfortunately, a lot of these young people are institutionalized, put into group homes because there aren't any foster parents that are available to take them in. That's, uh, that's, that's a sad reality. That's for sure. But the, also, though, we get to the, we go back to the t- types of kids that you've been dealing with, these kids mm-hmm. that are aging out mm-hmm. of the foster system. Let's talk about the possibilities for some of these kids and yes. what we've seen you know we can sit here and talk about the negative and i think we've painted a pretty good picture of what's possible there um, what about the possibility on a, on a, on a favorable outcome what have we seen yes so um I don't look at it as a negative for those other things. I look at it as a need. You know, we know what's needed. And a lot of these young people, just like any of us when we were younger, wanted to be loved, accepted, treated well. You know, and some of them have lived in different situations for so long that even if that's given to them in the beginning, they don't know how to accept it. So we have to think outside of the box and try to get them to understand what love looks like. The other thing that's very helpful is really getting them with others who have gone through the foster care system. Um, I know that when I found an alumni group, it was like an unspoken type of bond that we had, you know, although we have... How did you connect? I mean... Oh, yes, yes. Um, there were um, some people I connected with from New York City okay. and they were doing a conference called Fostering Change and I did not know all of these alumni even existed. So they got all these alumni together within the U.S., and we went with a George Frazier, who's also a foster care alumni. I did not know that. And he had us on a yacht. We did a conference <laughs> and he sponsored everything. And it was a beautiful experience. But to see so many well-doing alumni right. 
who looked like me. Some didn't. We had all different, you know, um, ethnicities there. But to see them in such a big group like that, and this was in Baltimore. And I was like, I didn't even know so many existed. So now when I do meet other alumni, because I'm saying myself, I am an alumni, they feel comfortable with saying it. And I said, well, why don't you say anything? They said, well, people don't, you know, ask us. I'm like, well, how are people supposed to ask you? Getting them more comfortable, again, that negative stereotype of being in foster care. Nobody wants to share because it's like embarrassing, you know? So changing that to something that say, okay, I went through the system. I made it. Yes, I may have had some ups and downs, which we all do in life. Mine may have looked a little bit different than others, but I made it. And I want to share that story. That's interesting to hear you say it like that, that in some ways almost being a, coming out of the foster system is almost a, something people would feel more comfortable mm-hmm. keeping secret. Yes, yes. And I, I can see how the, 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 the challenge here to try to change that. And because these are the success stories that these kids need to see. Right. And who wants to share that their mother or father is on drugs? You know, kids can be cruel, you know, growing up. Um, I was embarrassed growing up. You know, my mom suffered from uh, mental health, schizophrenia. She was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so when people would ask me, they say, well, well, what did you do to, you know, get into the foster care system? And I'm like, I didn't do anything. And then when I would tell them, you know, or share my story, they would say songs, they would tease me. And it was hurtful because who wants to think of their parent being inadequate, you know, because this is, these are people that you love and care about. And so I would just say, um, you know, if my foster parent, I say, oh, that's just my grandmother or my aunt, you know, to make it seem like I'm with a family member or something of that sort. But I was not taught at that age to accept my situation um, for what it was. And I felt embarrassed. I felt, um, responsible a little bit because my mom would say, you know, um, you're in foster care because you opened the door for the police officer. So no Mm -hmm. accountability from my parent, you know, and having that way on an 11 year old child whose brain isn't fully developed yet, who doesn't have an adult to sit and explain what the foster care system is, what's happening, what's going on. You can only imagine like what I was thinking. And so it took for people who would speak to me, my mentors, and talk to me to really help me to understand, you know, um, that this this ha- this is not your fault. You're a child. Right. You know, the adults who were supposed to take care of you, this is what they were supposed to be doing, and they failed to do that. So now, being in the foster care system, what are you going to choose to do? Are you going to make the best of your situation, or are you just going to sit here and hold on to the past? That's something you can't change. But what are you going to do? And so that's what helped me just change my way of thinking, um, my perspective, you know, of myself and what what I could control and just to move forward. But you would have to admit, though, that that's a unique approach to things in a lot of ways, not just for foster children, but Mm -hmm. for people in general. Like I said, hold on to the past, the the situation that it is, the grievance with the situation. Do you find that that it's hard to make that change, that to, to get people to make that turn? Yes. I think some have to be mentally strong, you know, and and others aren't as strong as others um, in that situation. But again, just having people 
around me saying, listen, I see something in you. You have that it factor. You can make it. You're intelligent. You know, you're this, you're that, you know, instead of saying, you know, you're not going to be anything, you know, based on your mother and father, the situation they're in, or you're too grown, you're too fast. And meaning that because I was more advanced as far as in my thinking and doing different things because I had been a caretaker for myself and my siblings since I was a child. Is that right? Yes. So how many siblings? Well, um, my mother has five children. I'm the oldest of her children, and my father has um, six children, and I'm the youngest of his children. So my uh, father is 10 years older than my mother. Um, I was the only one born into wedlock, and um, so I'm the oldest and the youngest. Wow. <laughs> Both sides, but with my mother's children, we were the ones put into foster care. If you could, if you don't mind sh- sharing a, a little bit about, you know, as much as you care to, to share, I, sh- mm-hmm. I should say, about that experience. You know, maybe how it started and even maybe if you can... I can only imagine what it must be like to, to start that. It's just to go from being home, whether even if home is mm-hmm. a difficult scenario, mm-hmm. to all of a sudden going to a new home. Right. Um, my mother um, passed last year. And thank you. And I remember her saying um, she never thought her life would be like this. You know, my mother was very intelligent, beautiful and had the world in her hands. And when she was growing up, the lifestyle that was in, you know, partying with Rick James and Hmm. all of those different people, drugs were the thing. And the mindset was. I'm not going to get hooked on anything, this, that, or whatever. And she didn't know that she suffered from mental health also. So as we know, um, professionals who work in that area is that when you utilize your drug of choice and you have mental health, it changes the chemical um, imbalance within your brain. It changes the makeup. So living with my mom, although I I loved her dearly, you know, I love her, you know, um, but it was like living with Jekyll and Hyde. She was manic. You Mm. know, and so part of me when we were placed into foster care was like a relief, you know, that I didn't have to deal with that. Although I loved my mom and I wanted to be with her, I thought we were going to be placed with family members. So that's how it started. Our first foster home was beautiful, you know, um, but our foster mother ended up passing away from breast cancer. Mm. And then from there. It was me and my younger sister. We went into this other home. Um, it was horrible there, and we were removed. And, and oh, I don't want to get overly specific about uh-huh. horrible, but just... They were drug addicts. Okay, all right. <laughs> and and their, um, they didn't pay their utilities, so in the middle of winter, we had no heat or anything like that, so I called... And they were, getting, uh, they were getting stipends stipend. oh, yes. oh, yes. care for you. Yes, and so I let the social worker know, then they removed us, and then this home... And you had to speak up for yourself on oh, that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because and I... And you're what, 13, 14 I was years 12. old? 12 years old. I was 12 old. at the time, yes. And so um, we went to move with this other lady, and um, she was mentally emotionally and verbally abusive. She would not let us in on her couch. We couldn't open her refrigerator. I would get physically ill from the food that she would cook. She had locks on her doors that you needed to use a key to get in and out of the house. So God forbid if there was a fire Mm. or anything, my sister and I would have been stuck there. So um, when it was time to go to high school, I said, I can't stay here. Absolutely not. And I decided to leave. My sister uh, stayed and she adopted my sister and caused a lot of uh, mental duress 
to my sister, you know. And so I went to another home, which was one of my friends who her mother was a foster parent. But when I went there, her brother tried to uh, molest me. And so I got out of there. The social worker didn't remove me from that home and I ran away. And I ended up um, with a family member who we were there. Uh, my mother had some other children now. So two of my younger brothers, um, one who we got straight from the hospital and my mother ended up going to prison and she was actually in prison with uh, Amy Fisher and Albion. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she was, she was in prison for uh, my entire uh, high school um, time, you know, and she got out right when I was graduating from high school. And at that time, um, I built a bond with my mom because she was clean and learned more about her. And, and, you know, we look at certain families and we say, oh, you know, they're functioning and dysfunction and all these things. But we have to understand generationally wise that people have utilized drugs and, and this abuse and things have happened, you know, for so many generations that it's embedded in the family. So I learned so much about my family and drugs and just how it was just relevant that it was there the entire time and people saw nothing nothing wrong with it and mental health, you know, how they didn't get help, you know, for what was happening to them. And so um, I was living with a family member and she uh, basically was utilizing her drug of choice, which was prescription drugs. And they ended up coming and taking all of us from her home. Mm. And so I ended up going to Compass House for a little while because when you're a teenager, there weren't a lot of homes that would take older kids. And then from there, I went to my last foster home. I was there from the age of 16 until 21 when I aged out. And so that was pretty okay. It was an older woman. And by that time, I was working. I was ready to go to college. And I was just concerned about what I was going to do with my life once I left. But that was the first opportunity where I didn't have to care for my siblings in home because it was just me. And from there, um, my mom, she was clean for a little while. We thought she was going to get my brothers. But her mother ended up passing. And... Um, that's when she went back and she just never stopped. Mm. Leah Daniel is with us uh, from Fostering Greatness. We're coming down to our final few minutes. I want to make sure that I, I see this and you brought it in uh, this book called I Shall Not Be Moved from Leah Angel. Yes. Daniel. Yes. Um, do we hear a little bit of what we just were hearing about right here right now? Yes, absolutely. Um, my extraordinary journey from trauma to triumph. You know, um, within that book, I talk about um, how I was, I was able to secure a relationship with my mom and keep boundaries in place. Because people say, well, how did you still love your mom after everything you went through? And once I learned about her story, that empathy and compassion and that grace set in because she didn't have anybody. And just like being in foster care, you know, um, just feeling unheard, unloved, forgotten, you know, and those things and the things she went through. So I just, you know, she would say to me, you're going to break the generational curse. Hmm. And so I was just grateful, even for my experience, because she may have gone through some things, so I didn't have to go through them. Right. And so in her you know, from her experience, me as a child, looking at those things, instead of saying, oh, I want to be like that, it scared me to death. Hmm. I said, no, I don't know what I want to be, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. And not that that's a horrible thing, but it just scared me to the point that I knew that I could do something and be something better. It sounds like you came, became an adult long before your time. Absolutely. 
What about, you talked about mental health. Yes. Um, let's just touch into that. We only have a couple of minutes left. But they're all, we always seem to open up these, these different lines of, uh, of thought here. But did you get help along the way? Absolutely. Um, my family members tease me. They say, you think counseling uh, is just for everybody and everything. Hmm. And I didn't understand how um, helpful it would be until I started going while I was in college because I had a lot of uh, pent up anger. I was angry with my mother. I was angry with my father. And it caused some health issues, you know, and, and it caused me to only see certain things, you know, I, I wasn't able to be open-minded, but also I was going to church and I learned about forgiveness and I, and I learned that forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to let people walk all over you, but forgiveness is for you to let go and to know that sometimes people don't know any other way. They just know, you know, the life that they were given and, and this is how they navigate things. And so that's what I saw within my mother and father. And I wanted to give my mother that grace and learn her story. And when I did, I was able to let it go. I knew that she did the best she could with what she had. And from there, I had to make a choice about what I was going to do. And so now I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm an educator, you know, a leader, an influencer, and... I am the example, not saying that I am perfect, but I talk about, you know, things and work through them. And that's the biggest thing that I got from therapy and counseling. Leah Daniel, our guest on Buffalo What's Next. Leah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great conversation. More to come, of course, on Buffalo What's Next every weekday morning at 10 right here on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.